0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, in fact, the one with authority. We thank you, God, that being the one with authority, that you saw fit to give us your word so that your people might know you and step into all that you have given to us, step into all that you have created for us, step into all that you have created us to be. God, we pray that you would give us faith to believe your word. We pray that You would come as a, uh, with Your Spirit to teach us, to glorify Yourself in our hearts, Lord, that we would be submitted to You as Your children, as Your sons and daughters, that You would be our Lord, just as You are our Savior. We thank You, God, that You have called us to take up our cross. And we thank You, God, that You have uh, ridden into the mess of our hearts and I pray, God, that you would teach us now to love you and to love others in your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it's very good to see all of you here today. And, uh, and I'm going to trust that after that uh, tater tot casserole that you will stay awake for this. In fact, I'm going to trust that I'm going to stay awake for this. Well, we are, we are, as you know, if you were with us last week, we are in Jerusalem. We have, uh, we have, it's been a long trip. It's been a long trip to Jerusalem. We have finally made it. We had the triumphal entry last week, and we had Jesus cleansing the temple, walking right into the temple and, uh, and cleansing it. Now, what we have today appears to be Monday morning, so that would have been Sunday, the first day of the week. He rides up, and this begins the week of the Passion. This is Jesus' Jesus's last week we're going to take this through. We're at the end of chapter 21, but we're going to take this uh, through through uh, 25, and then uh, and then into 26. We'll begin uh, the passion and the crucifixion. So, so Mark details. If we look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark details the days of the week really, really closely. We know. When is what's happening on Monday, what's happening on Tuesday, what's happening on Wednesday? Matthew doesn't seem as concerned. So we know that he rode in on Sunday, cleansed the temple on Sunday and then he leaves and goes to Bethany. Remember the, um, where he's camping out because there's six times the number of people in Jerusalem that there normally are and so it's hard to get a, hard to get a room, right? So he goes out to Bethany, comes back in. That's where we find him. He's on the way back into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And um, and so he has he has told us about uh, how to take up our cross. Uh, discipleship is is a sort of death and a sort sort of resurrection. And now we are moving into um, what we have in the uh, in, in the last week, and it's really a lot intensely um, a lot of a lot of teaching, uh, a lot of um, a lot of Jesus's wisdom, and a lot of confrontation uh, with the Pharisees. And so we have, uh, but we have a a sort of enacted parable of that confrontation uh, in this uh, cursing of the fig tree. So I'll read this one, I'll have um, some other parts other people can read. In the morning, Monday morning, as he was returning to the city, Jerusalem, he became hungry, and seeing... A fig tree by the wayside. He went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. Apparently, Jesus hadn't had his coffee that morning. He was hangry. Yeah, yeah. I can relate. I'm I'm very Christ-like in that sense. Yeah, yeah. That's right.
1: (laughs)
0: Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. I have to tell you, that is one of the hardest verses in Scripture. Like if I were to drop my faith, I feel like that would be the reason. Not, like, not the resurrection, not the miracles, but the promise that whatever you ask in faith will be given to you uh, if, you, you know, and, and, and then we ask in faith and we don't receive it, or at least we try. So let's, uh, let's come back to that. This is an acted out parable uh, rather than an instructive one. You know what I mean by that? You know, it's a, it's a sort of, it's a symbolic gesture, just like cleansing the temple. And in fact, just like riding in uh, on the donkey. Um, Jesus is not promising to give us superpowers, Right? But the, what does the fig tree represent? You might know. Pardon me? Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. Who should have been bearing fruit? Israel. So specifically the ministry of the temple, I think. Okay. So in Mark we have, uh, we have fig tree. Jesus curses the fig tree. Then the temple. Jesus cleanses the temple. Then they leave the temple, come back, and see the fig tree is withered. So we have fig tree, temple, fig tree. But Matthew, we have temple, cleansing the temple, fig tree, cursing and withering, and then uh, back uh, to the temple where they ch- challenge his authority. Interesting that they've taken these different tactics, even though they're telling the same story. The chronology of it really is not as important. Um, there's no reason to go, well, Matthew said it happened on Monday, and and Mark said it happened on Sunday, so... so it, we can't trust the Bible. Like that's that's not a that's not an, uh, that's not where we need to go with that. But um, what's interesting is in the Passover season, the the figs would have been out of season. Like there's there's not going to be any figs on that tree. What's interesting is that the tree has any leaves at all. In fact, that some some might say if we're really looking close. Like that's part of what Jesus has said. That that itself is miraculous. They found a fig tree. Certainly not miraculous. That he's hungry, or that he's hangry. I don't know how how that worked for Jesus, but but it is. Um, the point is, that the fig tree looks like it is full and good, even out of season, and yet it is not producing any fruit. That was a, that was the ministry of the temple at that time. According to Jesus. Now, the Pharisees and the the priests who were offering the sacrifices, they, I'm sure, would have said something much different than that. But the fig tree looks healthy. There's a lot of leaves, but on closer inspection, uh, there's no fruit. And I think that what Jesus is saying in this is that they have begun to trust their ritual practices rather than to trust the God to whom they offer the sacrifice. In other words, we're doing all the stuff so God should be giving us what we want. It's a transactional view of faith rather than a, um, or it's a transactional view of religion rather than a relational view of faith. That's what I'm trying to say. That make sense? We're not doing this for the glory of God. We're doing this for the stuff that God might give us. We're doing our part. He'll do his part. The object of their faith is in their own doing of religious things rather than the one uh, who can move mountains. He is not an object of their faith any longer. We do this so easily. So easily. Do you have an example of how we might put our trust in our own works or in something else other than God? Yes, Connie. Maybe
2: like with tithing,
0: well, I'm going to give so that I will get. Give. give. I'm going to give so, I, so I'll get. Yeah, okay. I I've, Absolutely. I'm shocked when I give, and there's not money left over. (laughs) Sometimes there is. I mean, I I, I've had that story. I've told you guys several times that about when I was in seminary and we had four hundred dollars in cash and seven hundred dollars in bills, and God convicted our hearts and we wrote a tie check, and three thousand dollars showed up over the next two weeks. You know, so that was fantastic. Uh, but that does not mean that I will always have the faith to do to repeat that action when it looks like I have more bills than I have money. And it's harder and harder. I mean, inflation's going up. These, that's a real, that's a real live, very present example. Thank you. But we do sometimes view a transactional view of faith. One, of the, one example that comes to mind, and this is, I mean, this is a hard one. Some of you guys may really uh, resonate, but I remember a pastor talking about it was one of the it was one of the like I got a vision of heaven kind of kind of pastors heaven is real or one of the one of those things. But he was praying over his child who was in the uh, hospital, and he said, and his son was going to die. And he said, um, and that's the son that went to heaven and saw the vision, or claimed to. I think maybe later it was a hoax. I don't, doesn't matter. But the story is that that the pastor was saying to uh to god is this how you treat your servant in other words after all i've done for you this is what i get in return and that is a i mean that is so human and natural and i don't mean to criticize that man but because it is so uh raw but it is it is to say i i feel like this is the end of the story even though god knows it's not we don't know what the end of the story is god's still writing the story um so we, we do this very easily. We have this transactional view of faith. And this, and this should um, call us to repent of that. Not to say that we're going to fall under judgment uh, if, uh, and wither uh, if, uh, if we don't, But because um, we are saved by grace. But it's, it is a, a call for all of us to put our, our trust, I believe, in, um, in the authority of Christ rather than the authority of our own good works. And I would call us all to examine how we do. I mean, the sermon really kind of about the Pharisee and the tax collector today really examines that uh, as well. And call us just to give some reflection time to that this week. God, is there anything that I'm trusting in other than you? Is is am I expecting anything of you, or is this is this gift that I'm giving to you? Whether it's uh, being a shepherd or. or um, Serving at the food bank or tithing or whatever it is—is is this something that I expect uh, your goodness in return for, or am I—is it a free will offering? And I'm trusting you to write the story, even if I don't like the story right now. I got—I'm—I'm I'm telling my own story. I promise you. So that's the fig tree. We got a lot to cover with these uh, parables. So I'm gonna—I'm gonna keep going. We good? All right. Somebody read to us uh, the next. About the authority of Jesus being challenged 23 through 27. Somebody read that for us. You're looking at me like you want to read it, Pam. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Thank you so much for volunteering.
1: And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say, for man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they will hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things.
0: Thank you so much. So what's what's the issue here? They're setting him a trap. Okay. What? What is? What's at stake? <coughs> the authority. Authority is the issue. Uh, they're challenging his authority, and and he's challenging them right back. Right. He's challenging their authority uh, as well. And the authorities of the temple. They're they're the authorities. They come to him and ask, Jesus, who do you think you are doing these things? There's. A, I think. Even though it's the next day in Matthew's narrative, I think what we're talking about is the, uh, the flipping of the tables and the running off of the cows and the, and the, and the pigeons uh, from the cleansing of the temple. The, uh, and, and he's not one of them. He's not one of the Pharisees, so he, they're, and they're the ones who make the rules. So, but it's interesting that they don't just have him arrested because he's viewed by the people, right? As one who, remember chapter 7? Verse 29, after the uh, Sermon of the Mount, they marveled because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Same word here. Uh, exousia, I think is the uh, Greek word. And, and so they're, they're challenging what, by what authority? Who gave you this authority? Now they want him to say, I get this authority from God on high, right? Because then they can charge him with blasphemy. And so it is, I think, something of a trap. And yet it's also, I mean, he's not going to say, well, Caiaphas said I could do it. You know, like that would, um, that he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have that authority and Caiaphas wouldn't have given him that. But, but consistently, why, why won't Jesus ever give a straight answer? He never gives a straight answer. Why? He doesn't give a straight answer here. He doesn't have to. <laughs> Say more. I love that. Say more. Because, he is who he is. because You're a theologian. You're a theologian. He is who he is. I am who I am. He is who he is. Over and over. I mean, why does Jesus say, don't tell anybody who I am for so long? Because faith is something that you arrive at by the power of the Spirit of God. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he responds, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Faith, he, is, he is absolutely so stubborn in not insisting on his authority, not, um, not demanding faith, but allowing faith to happen by the power of the Spirit. He never answers a straightforward question. Jesus, we want you to put us at your left hand and your right. That's not for me to decide, he says. It is not, he will not take the bait on who he is because, and he, the reason he won't take the bait on who he is is because of who he is. Because faith comes uh, by uh, the Spirit of God, and he's not going to tell him the answer. Now I've talked to folks in the past that say, "Well, you know, Jesus never actually says He is God. He—I mean, He rides in on a donkey to say He's a God. He said everything He does says that He is God. That's what got Him killed. That was the obvious message. And yet, He will not answer the question because faith is—we uh, are saved by grace, and we're not even saved by good theology. You're not saved by believing the right things. I want you to believe the right things. I hope before God that I believe the right things. But what saves me is His grace to me." The cross and his resurrection. My sin on his shoulders. His life given for mine. That's what saves us. And Jesus is not going to take the bait. So he actually says, Alright, I'll give you some of your own medicine, right? And they and he kind of paints them into a corner that they can't get out of. They're afraid of what other people are going to say. If they say that John is not a prophet, and yet they know if we say he is a prophet, we give an answer to this guy, we're, we're pigeonholed, right? So they say, we don't know. They have an opinion. You know they have an opinion. But they're too chicken to say what it is. And So he says, I'm not going to give you the dignity of telling you the authority to do these things. But the goal is not that they hear it. The goal is that they believe it because of who he is. Um, Jesus' authority comes not from what he can do, or even who ordained him to do it, because presumably the same God who set him apart and um, actually gave them the authority over the temple. His authority is on who he is. He is the second person of the Trinity. And so, in order, so that's the context of these next two uh, parables, is authority. And we need to remember that, because it's easy to get a little off track. But if you frame it, understanding that it is about the authority of Jesus, He is who He is, as our theologian uh, Dr. Bates has said, that, um, that, I don't know why you're laughing, (laughs) that He is who He is, and therefore that's what we want to keep in mind as the frame and the structure of these two parables parable of the two sons so jesus in the context of so i mean right into this this in the context of the authorities asking him there seems to be no break in the conversation what do you think says jesus a man had two sons and he went to the first and said son go and work in the vineyard today now again with the vineyard jesus we had the um we had the uh the laborers in the vineyard remember that the, uh, the, the workers, and there's so many over and over again, because uh, over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel is the vineyard. Psalm 80, the planting of the Lord, right? That, that's, they're the ones that were supposed to bear fruit all through the Song of Solomon, the, uh, the um, words of Proverbs. Israel is the vineyard. So, and they, and why is that? Because they live in an agricultural culture. So he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. I know that kid. <laughs> I was that kid. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Oh, sorry, I wasn't I that I I kid. Um, and he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Mm. Which of these two did the will of the father? It said the first one, the one who said, I will not, but then did, then went. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even when you saw that, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. what what is the message here? I think one way to read it is that works matter more than words, right? I think if I were reading it just on the plane, if I just if that was the reading of the day and I just I just pulled it right out of its context and I wasn't looking at the, uh, uh, the question about authority. I wasn't looking at the triumphal entry and the temple and all these things. I think that that's would—that's where I would naturally go. But to say simply that words matter, uh, works matter more than words seems not only to depart from the context of authority, but it seems to de- depart from uh, the theology that says that we're saved by grace and not by works. So in the context... What seems to matter, then, is the heart of each son towards the father. Because it looks externally for all the world, the first son, like disobedience. I'm not doing that. i got better things to do. There's a football game on today, Dad. The Giants are coming to town, and we're, gonna look, we're finally going to win. That was actually a joke. Um, I don't know. That was... <laughs> no, they're not. Um, I hope they do. I hope they do. Um, and, and yet, in the, what prevails in the end is the relationship. And we're not told that the son was like, gum it, and he goes out and storms out of the, and they're resentful. But he, he goes and he works in the vineyard. Just like the father asked him to do. His history is that he has said no he's not going to do that but what happens in the end is that the relationship prevails. What happens with the second son is that it looks like obedience. He got leaves on the tree, right? It looks good. He says, "I'm going to go, dad." But what deteriorates in the end is the relationship. And he doesn't actually listen or adhere to the authority of the father. In the context of authority, it is the disobedient Son whose heart eventually leads Him to do what the Father is at. What is the will of the Father? John 6. This is the will of My Father that you believe on the One whom He has sent. What is to prevail in this parable is faith. Faith in the Father and the One whom He has sent. The commentator and Episcopal priest, Robert Capon, who I've commended to you, especially uh, on the parables before, says that judgment falls on those who fail to repent of unfaith. Say that again. Judgment falls on those who fail to repent of unfaith. In other words, what Jesus said in... uh, Is that, I think it was it's in John chapter one, right? No, no, no. John chapter three, where he says, um, "God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but has eternal life. Those who don't believe will are already condemned." So we are. God is inviting us, who are externally, looks for all the world, for all sorts of ways that we are disobedient, or even if we are looking to uh, be obedient and we look like we got leaves on the tree but no fruit, that he's inviting us to the will of the Father, which is belief. That is that is what he's so stubborn about. He won't give us the answer. We've got to come to it ourselves. We've got to... So I probably shouldn't have told you either, right? I should just let you let it hang out there. But, um, but Jesus says uh, that... The one who does the will of my Father, that is the one who believes on Him whom the Father has sent, is the one who, even though it looked like He wasn't going to, in the end, does. So
3: kind
0: of Go ahead.
1: This might be too big for our session, but does that mean that it's possible for us to be saved and then lose that salvation? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Father George's on vacation. Daggum. All right. Uh, the question that Susie uh, presented was Does that mean then that it is possible for us to lose our salvation? I don't think that's what's being said. Now, the most Reformed theologians, Reformation theologians, would say that, um, that it just indicates they never were saved in the first place. It looked good on the outside, but it, you know, kind of had the it's like that uh, parable with the with the weeds, you know. And it looked they grew up and had no root and withered in the sun. I'm not sure I go all the way there, but it's like the, uh, you know, the the the, la- the the last will be first and the first will be last. I mean, I think that's like like Miss Turpin in the sermon today, like we find ourselves at the back. I don't know that we can, I mean, if we can't lose our salvation because we can't gain our salvation. So if God gives it to us, we shouldn't presume that he's going to take it from us just because he, you know, like this is something that's really important. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of unbelievers. As if to say, I've cleaned up your mess, now don't mess it up again. But in fact, Jesus has died for the sins of all of us, including Christians. There, you know Christians, you may be one, uh, you know Christians that feel an extraordinary pressure not to mess it all up again. Because God already gave him grace once. No. Grace is for all time. Okay? It's the, diff- it's, it's the difference between a beautiful but fake bunch of flowers next to a beautiful pot of real flowers. Like, this one is beautiful, and it's not going to die. But it's not going to grow either. This one is going to have all sorts of problems. It's got to be tended to, but it gives life over and over and over again. So, I don't think he's saying that salvation. Now there are other passages that, that you could argue even more you have to argue more carefully. But I don't think certainly from here we're saying that we can lose our salvation. I think it's simply calling people who look good on the outside to faith on the inside. At the example of those who look bad on the outside but actually have faith on the inside. So he gives another parable. Right on the heels of this one. Let's, let's have somebody uh, read, let's have somebody else read it right through the end of the psalm, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Will somebody read that for us? Connie, go ahead.
2: Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine winepress in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he said to his son, finally he sent his son to them, saying, "They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, "This is the heir. come, let us kill him and have his inheritance." And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is
0: marvelous in our eyes. Alright. Another vineyard. Jesus. He is hammering it, and He just, just won't let the vineyard go, will He? Because He is so concerned for the house of Israel, the people, the children of the Lord, not just the Jews, but for all of us. My my now is that, is that in Christ we are all in a sense Israel. That may be controversial. I don't mean it to be. Um, but again, this is the, the context of this is the authority of, of Jesus and who He is. Uh, and, and this is about as bald a, a parable as we can get right? There's very little covering here. There's a vineyard, that's Israel. They put a fence around it. That's the Jewish heritage. Dug a wine press in it. That's the temple. Built a tower. That's the temple. Leased it uh, to the tenants. That's the Pharisees. And went into another country. That's heaven. right? God's looking down on us. When the season for fruit drew near, He sent His servants to the tenants to get His fruit. The servants are who? Prophets. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. He sent other servants, more than the first. Could, why would he, why would he do that and not just get an army? Like, didn't, like, I mean, it just seems like the, the first guy comes back bloodied and bruised, and that's, like, that's it. But he just, why? Because he's so gracious and patient. He sent others, or maybe he's just trying to prove how stubborn they were. I don't know. But and the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and he sent more and more, and they did the same. And finally, he sent the son. And it says, and as if the father really thinks they're going to respect the son. The father's not so foolish. The tenants, and, and we know that because Jesus, the son, says what's going to happen, right? This tenant saw the son and said to themselves, here's the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. Now, it is not to be thought that the Pharisees thought, well, here's the son of God, we're going to uh, we're, we're gonna kill him so we can be the sons of God. I mean, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but not, nevertheless... Is the like the, the power and the position? I think it's the favor. favor. The favor of God. Uh, the power, the authority... Um, the one who, it's, not, not, it's such underhanded power though. It's not, it's not sh- what Capen calls right-handed strong power. It's this sort of, I'm, I'm going to win by losing kind of power. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? And they take the bait, man. Like he, all the time they're trying to trick him. And he won't buy it, but man, well, he just—he tells the story and he says, man, that tenant is going to wear these guys out, these wretches, he's going to put them to a miserable death and, and give it to somebody who can, can handle it the right way. They just, they hook, line, and sinker, they take uh, the bait of that story. And he doesn't say, you're dang right he's going to do that, y'all are in trouble, But he takes the ver- a verse from a psalm. Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Same psalm. Wonderful psalm. Takes a verse from a psalm that would ha- appear to have no connection at all to his story. Totally different metaphor. Jesus mixes his metaphor. His English teacher would be upset. <laughs> or at least my English teacher would be upset with Jesus. There is no connection with the psalm until Jesus makes it. The parable is about tents, tenants and messengers and a son in a, in a vineyard. The psalm is about builders throwing away a stone and that gets used in an important way later. Jesus fuses them in a way that makes perfect sense to say that He is the kind of Messiah uh, that the Scriptures have been expecting all along. All along. They, the Scriptures weren't expecting a... A military leader. They weren't expecting a, a, a righteous king. They were expecting Isaiah 53's suffering servant. The one who gets rejected by the very ones who should have seen his strength that God takes and uses the cornerstone on which to build His church. The son who gets killed in the vineyard is the stone. And it is marvelous marvelous. It is, in fact, his very throwing out and being killed by the tenants that, that qualifies him to be the cornerstone. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And then he just he, he takes the blinders all the way off. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on this stone, stone of stumbling, As Saint Paul calls it, a rock of offense. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What do me? What sounds kind of harsh for Jesus? What's he mean? If we keep trying to say that Jesus isn't who He is telling us He is, if we keep trying to make Jesus just an example of good, of, of love that we are to live up to, if He can do it, we can do it, it's going to crush us. Because we can't, we can't live like that. I mean, we should try. But at least on the front end of our salvation, as a means to our salvation, if our own works we're not going to listen to god's repeated cry to fall on him for mer- crowd for mercy and and instead are going to wave our resume and say we are righteous and we deserve everything you've given us it's going to crush us so
3: are the people
1: producing his fruits the gentiles?
0: yes are the people producing his fruits the gentiles? it's the believers, Jews and gentiles alike I should say that it's not the Jews in opposition; it's not the Gentiles in opposition to the Jews. It's believers, regardless of their heritage, which that itself would have been offensive in their culture because they were the people of God and not the others. And Jesus is beginning to open it up to all people. So you're right; he's going to lend it out to people who produce the fruits. And when they, the chief priests and the Pharisees, heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. Very perceptive. I feel like this has a resonant tone here. <laughs> and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held because the crowds held him to be a prophet. Jesus is moving us towards the cross and he's challenging our sense of authority. And it's it's always it's always the church people who get in trouble. It's always the Pharisees, right? It's always the leaders. It's people like me, but in some ways, people like you, who are getting in trouble because they want—we want to believe that we are good people. We want to believe that what we do matters, and it, and it does. It just doesn't save us. It's, it's the fruit that is. It's the it's the fruit of faith. Faith is what matters. Constantly giving ourselves to God and and His saving Son. Open to His gracious and righteous Spirit. And He is working through us uh, to give us the faith and to have those good works. I mean, I I think I've told you before that one of the most moving, important moments in all of my seminary education was when somebody was challenging my professor about... uh, that we are called to good works. He said, of course we are. But if you think that following the Ten Commandments Mm. earns you God's favor, it's going to crush you. But if you do it out of faith, then everything that the the law commands, we do not out of resentment, but out of love. Grace creates what the law wants. Again, it's the difference between the the dead flowers and the the fake flowers and the live flowers. A flowers are messy and dirty and wonderful. They smell good sometimes. The other ones look good, but there's nothing to them. And we don't want to be the, the dead flowers. Or, and they're not dead. They're fake, right? We want to be, we are the living flowers. I hope that makes sense. That's the best I could come up with. All right. Questions, thoughts, comments? I don't thought. Whoa. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors. Ladies first. I, I have a comment. Okay.
1: I love all of this, and I mean, you've made everything so clear, but the one, one thing that I have problems with, and I'm speaking for myself, it was that very first part what, that said, if you pray for something,
0: you're going to get it. Mm. <laughs> and I yeah, I did kind of gloss over I that, did. that, didn't I? Um.
2: <laughs>
1: God's time, yes. in God's time, it just, you know, you can pray for the same thing for half of your life, and you don't ever see that coming to
0: fruition. Tell me about it, sister. Yes.
1: So, I think for a new Christian, that would be difficult.
0: Yeah. You know, I think it, it is God's time, and it may not be in this life. And that's hard to swallow. Well, I know. I know. And, I mean, the only thing that I know how to do is, t- and it is satisfying to me, but it's not without pain. It's to say that the Lord sees it in a different way than I see it. Keith.
3: So, I kid you not, this is what I wrote down. Thank you. Um, it's not only the faith; it's trust in the time yes. of what you have faith in.
0: Yeah, trust. Yeah, yeah that's that's, that's right. That. That's right. And it's better said than what I said, but that's what I meant. Yeah.
3: That God applies to the situation. Mm-hmm. And believe me, that's something in our life that we definitely—it's. Do you, are you the the um, the uh, good shepherd? and leave everything to go chase something that you think that you can fix or are you the or are you the um, well
1: like the probably the the, way you can have the situation handled
3: Yeah. so right so sometimes we try to step into God's space because timing isn't working the way we felt it was so um, Hmm. so interesting
0: I tell you what, I think that waiting, and sometimes for years, is is the part of the faith that gets tested in the authority where where the rubber meets the road whose authority we really trust. And, and it is. And,
3: and there's two two parables, right? It's the um, the. Um, the son that left, uh, the prodigal son, yeah. and then there's a the good shepherd, right? Yeah. And there are two different approaches. A good shepherd just leaves everything and goes out and do it. So maybe he's giving us options, or don't chase after it and fully believe in God that it would
0: be right. I don't know that I ever put the, the good shepherd who leaves the ninety-nine and goes after the one next to the prodigal son, where the dad just sits and waits on the porch. I never thought about that. I have to give that some thought. That's good. All right, Katie.
1: Yeah, well, what Charlene was talking about. Don't forget, a lot of us, if you have faith and do not doubt, how many of us, when we pray for something like that, a healing or anything, doesn't have that little bit of doubt like, this isn't going to work. You know, we can't prove that now.
0: We're going to have that put in doubt, most of us human beings. You know, it's just, it's, it, we do, we, I mean, it's just hard, but it's not magic either, you know, it's yeah, like, it's I don't, not magic. you know, I'm praying, I prayed for my friend who who died and I asked the Lord to remove his cancer from him. I got another friend whose son uh, is dying of cancer and it doesn't look like the <laughs> Lord is going to heal him. It doesn't look like it. And so, you know, I want to hedge my prayers a little bit, Lord, you know, it's, it is hard.
1: It's hard not to
0: have. You guys, I know y'all each have your story and, and you've all dealt with the same exact thing on some level in some way. And um, and you will. And that's part of the life of faith. The
1: other thing on, on all of these, it, what's saying to me is that as you learn more, as people listen more to you, because you've learned a lot over the course of the years, don't for,
0: forget your humility. Right. Well, we'll let, hear about that let in the let sermon. a
1: pride. <laughs> <in the> way.
0: <laughs> and it's it's a it's a barnstorming sermon too. Yeah. It's a great one. <laughs> and you can see yeah. the, for the Mm. Hmm. That's right. That's right. Charlotte, you get the last word. Sorry. Well, I was just going to
1: make a comment about healing. Sometimes. God's healing is death. When people are oh, suffering, yeah. it, and I think that we see death as bad because the person has left us we're mourning. But God doesn't see death. No, I agree. God sees death as bringing you back to Him where but, there is no pain.
0: Yeah, but I told the mountain to move and it didn't move. You know, like, I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, that's,
1: I never tried that one, so.
0: Well, I mean, that's, you know, you told I told you
1: that. You told
0: the mountain to move and what left you. Love you. Go to church.